Well, Father, we have sung this morning of sovereign grace. All but for your sovereign grace, where would we be today? We thank you that through your great grace, you have called us unto yourselves to be the children of God. We thank you, Father, for the fellowship we enjoy and the fellowship that's possible this morning as we come into your very presence to sing your praises and sing your adorations. For you are God. You alone are the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe. And we delight to know that we are your people. Thank you, Father, for the way you have provided for us. We thank you, Father, for the provisions that we have enjoyed this week as a people living in a sovereign and free country. We thank you for the freedom that the armed forces of our of, of this country represented this week. We have seen testimonies of the generosity and patience and and grace of a people that, Lord, we know as your people has, has come from the heritage that this country was founded upon. And Father, we pray this morning that you would continue to protect the armed forces of this country as those men and women serve, especially those who serve on that foreign soil. And we pray that you will protect them again this week. And Father, as we have prayed week after week, we pray that you will guide our president and, and his staff, lead them down paths of righteousness. Father, this morning, we would lift up our country to you. And Lord, we know that as a nation, we have turned our back upon you and we pray that in these hours that you would call this country to repentance. And we recognize, Father, that repentance, that revival truly must begin among the people of God. And we pray that maybe you would even work and begin that revival in the people of grace. Father, we lift up those in our family who have suffered loss this week. Uh, we think of Anita Tower, who lost a father, and Del Smith, who lost a mother, and Others who are even now dealing with severe illness in their families. And we pray that you would comfort these people. Holy Spirit of God, bring encouragement. And we thank you for the great gospel of hope and the future of the resurrection. That, Lord, we celebrate even this morning and we will celebrate in the coming weeks the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray, too, that you will bless the speaker for the hour this morning. I pray that you will speak through James Saxon and may we see Jesus Christ and not merely a man this morning behind the pulpit. But use his words, the words of truth to speak to us. We need truth this morning. Now, fathers, we come to the giving of the offering. We thank you for your blessings again. We know that all things come from you. And so we give joyfully and cheerfully this morning, thankfully. For what you have done, and we pray that you will use these offerings to build the kingdom of God, and may Grace Evan continue to have a part in the building of the kingdom. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's my privilege again this morning to introduce our final speaker in this series, so I'll say more about James Saxon in just a moment, but this is the last Sunday we'll have a guest, and then we're coming down to the end of um, our time, or Jimmy's time away from us. Next Sunday will be Palm Sunday. We begin Holy Week. I'll be preaching next Sunday. And then that Thursday, the following Thursday, we'll celebrate Monday Thursday service here. 
uh, in the uh, sanctuary at 7 p.m. on that Thursday night. And then Jimmy will be back to preach his first sermon again on Easter Sunday. So things are coming to a close. We're, we are privileged this morning to have a longtime friend of Jimmy's. James Saxon is with us to preach. James is on staff at the Church of the Apostles in Atlanta, Georgia. He's the director or pastor of adult education there. Uh, James and Jimmy's path crossed many years ago uh, at RTS. I think uh, James, I think you were leaving and Jimmy was coming or something like that to RTS. And then their paths crossed again in Florida while they were both in ministry and the pastor down there. And so we're delighted to have James Saxon. Welcome, brother, to Grace Evangelical Church. Well, good morning. As Richard said, I am on staff at the Church of the Apostles in Atlanta. I've been an ordained minister now for a little bit over 20 years and the proud father of two daughters and happily married. But I want you to think of me this morning as probably the biggest fan of Jimmy Young's on the planet. Uh, We have enjoyed a Jonathan-David soul-knit-together relationship for a number of years. And Jimmy and I have always had this friendship where... We have never competed with each other. But Jimmy's success has always been mine, and my success has always been his. And when we, the Lord worked it out for me to be here today, I was so thrilled that I could get away from the things that I do at my church in Atlanta to be here. And this is my first time to see this magnificent building. And I commend those of you, and there must have been hundreds of you, that put time and energy into the creation of a worship center of this enormous high quality and I am just tripping over my excitement in being here <laughs> I still have to preach a sermon and I keep forgetting that so I, I, I am just so overwhelmed with the goodness of God and what I'm seeing here and I want to tell you one little story and that is that the night before this church started I was still in Tampa Florida at the time and Jimmy called me or I called him I can't remember which it was and he and Susie were nervous wrecks before the day this church was going to start the next Sunday. And Jimmy was like a cat on a hot tin roof, and you know how that can be when Jimmy, <laughs> when Jimmy gets a little excited. And he was telling me all of the things that could possibly go wrong the next day. And I remember just saying to him, Jimmy, please understand that the curtain is about to rise on a phase of your ministry here on planet Earth that's going to be the most exciting period in your life. And you just go to bed now and relax. And tomorrow, just go do what God has called you to do. And you're about to be amazed at all that the Lord's going to affect. And I think the, the, if I understand the church is 12 years old or something like that, and, and this sanctuary is a culmination of the work and energy of so many people. And so my hat is off to you. Praise the Lord for all that God has done. Let's give the Lord a, a round of applause for the... Uh, The tremendous work that God has done to bring you to this place today. Now, it is my privilege this morning to open the Word of God to you, and I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, and let me um, direct your attention to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and then also I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I know that in this service, we have to be a little bit more conscious of our time because of the second service. So my remarks will be a little bit briefer uh, in this service. But let me direct your attention to John chapter 1. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and just hold that open. 
we will hear the word of God this morning from these two places. The word of God comes to us from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we've all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Tell you what, in the interest of time, I won't read that First Timothy passage. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask now that the essence of Jesus will fill this place. This marvelous, heavenly and holy blend of grace and truth. And I would ask, Lord, that the fragrant aroma of his awesome presence would fill this place and penetrate the innermost recesses of our hearts. Send us away strengthened, cleansed, and encouraged. In his name I pray. Amen. One of the things that I love about this church is the name of it. The name of this church is Grace Evangelical Church. The two words that you chose to describe yourself when you started this body were the words grace and evangelical. Now, first of all, what does the word evangelical mean? Well, because there's so much theological confusion today in our world, occasionally we need to define ourselves. And when we think of this church and people as being evangelical, we mean these three things. An evangelical is one who, first of all, believes in the reliability of the Scripture in all matters of faith and practice. The second thing an evangelical church or individual believes is in the necessity of a born-again conversion experience in which people come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The third thing that an evangelical believes in is the urgency to go out and actively convert those who haven't had that born-again experience, actively go out and bring those people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So evangelicalism today and evangelicals reflect these three values, the reliability of Scripture, the necessity of a born-again experience, and number three, the urgency of taking the gospel to lost people. Now, you have designated yourself as an evangelical church, so those are things that that are woven into the fabric of how you do church around here. That describes you as an evangelical church. But notice that you've also entitled yourself Grace Evangelical Church. You could have chosen other terms like Faith Evangelical Church, Hope Evangelical Church, Germantown Evangelical Church, but you chose the word grace. Now, I couldn't think of a better and more dynamic combination for a title of a church than those two words. Evangelicalism refers to churches that stand upon the solid word of God require people to join the church to demonstrate a personal faith in Jesus and then get their church members busy out trying to reach those who haven't met the Lord yet and realizing along with that spirit of evangelicalism is this empowering reality called grace. And when grace empowers all that evangelical activity, 
great things happen. You know, when the world around us today thinks of evangelicals, they don't think of gracious people. Today, our enemies or our adversaries politically have characterized evangelicals as anti-people. We're anti-alternative lifestyle. We're anti-choice. We're anti-pornography. But you know, people that are truly evangelical are people who are not known for what they stand against, but what they stand for. And when evangelical people grasp and embody the concept of grace, that it has a sweet balance that brings into play Christ-likeness in some magnificent ways. And so this morning, let me talk to you this morning about this idea of grace. And let me call you back to being an evangelical flavored and tempered by grace and give you a little bit of an idea of what that looks for. You know, the Old Testament word for grace is a word which means favor. The New Testament word for grace, the root word for grace, comes from the word joyful. Now, if you put those two together, you get a nice picture of grace. It is unconditional favor that God bestows upon us, Old Testament term. And it causes to well up inside of people a joyfulness that's appreciative of the grace of God in their lives. When someone comes to know and taste and experience the grace of God, it breeds this joyfulness and this gratitude in all that they do. So that when they meet the unconditional favor of God that's given to them freely and without condition and without limit, it causes this joyful appreciation to well up within them and it drives their spiritual lives. As we look into the scripture, we find that Jesus didn't at any place use the word grace much and he never really attempted to define it. He just modeled it and then through his parables, he illustrated it. And Jesus served as this incredible magnet that people just flocked to. And the the song that the lady sang this morning, I'm not sure what day the music is picked, but I bet that song was picked before I called you on Thursday and told you I was going to preach on grace. So I'll take that as an, an evidence of God's work here in which he's brought that together. But that was a beautiful song, and the tenderness of it spoke tones of grace. Now, if you want a theology of grace, it kind of goes like this. God is for those who are against him. When we love people, we tend to love those who love us. That's one thing. But love becomes grace when love is no longer deserved. So God is for those of us who are against him. And when that reality comes together, it causes to form in the hearts of people a deep sense of sweetness and humility toward the Lord. Now, having said that about grace today, let me direct your attention to the scripture passage we read. And if you still have it open, please look down at verse 14. And notice that we are told in this passage, first of all, that when Jesus came into the world, he represented the incarnation of grace. The beginning of the verse says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says at the end of verse 14 that he was full of two things. That he was full of grace and he was full of truth. Jesus was able to embody this remarkable blend of the two most powerful realities in the church today. Grace and truth. Now you may think about it with me for a second. Truth without grace tends to be a little stern and hard. Grace without truth tends to be a little soft or mushy. But if you put those two things together... You put grace and truth together, 
then you've got the embodiment there of something that is absolutely beyond this world. And it says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. The essence of who Jesus was, was this beautiful blend of grace and truth. Now, I want you to understand in evangelicalism today that we tend to be known a little bit more for the truth than we are for our grace. And so we have to work to keep these things in a proper tension and a proper balance. Because Jesus was, as I said, the the perfect blend of both of those. And so we also want to be too. Notice that Jesus was the essence of grace and truth. Secondly, notice that Jesus was the fountainhead of grace. It says on down that passage, I think about verse 15 or 16, it says that um, the law was realized through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus. And that of his fullness, we have all received. Grace is not just a theology. It's a person. And as people move toward that person of Jesus, they move toward that living encounter with grace. And God's heart, who is this lovesick father in pursuit of sinners that have drifted away from him, is always ready to extend to his people grace when they come back to him in humility. So Jesus was not only the incarnation of grace, but he was the essence of it. And in the parables of Jesus, we find this this remarkable explanation of how Jesus modeled grace. You remember that in Luke 15, that that all these sinners were coming to Jesus and uh, the tax gatherers and the Pharisees were standing around him grumbling that this person, Jesus, received these sinners. And so Jesus confounded them by then telling these stories that were the stories of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and of course, the lost son. And as Jesus told these stories, all of these stories kind of ended with this resounding conclusion that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner repents, over one sinner who repents, than all the other, all the others that are in the possession of the person who found the one that they had lost. Every time a sinner repents, there's a party in heaven. And that represents the heart of God toward lost people. Now I want you to notice in that passage in John, verse 18, it says that Jesus has come to us. Let me read it for you once more. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now, notice how Jesus gives to us such a marvelous picture of the heart of the Father. Now, notice it says that Jesus has come to us from the bosom of the Father. Do you know that that word literally means cleavage? It refers to the dead center of a person's heart, close to the person's heart. So Jesus came from the cleavage, if you will, or the bosom of the Father to us. And it goes on to say that Jesus coming from the heart of the Father has explained the heart of the Father to us. And the word for explain is the word from which we get the word exegesis. When we exegete the Bible, we go into the Bible and study the Greek, the Hebrew, the history, the theology, and we pull the meat out of the text and we get down to it and bring it forward. Well, Jesus comes to us and exegetes for us the heart of the Father. And what he tells us is this. The heart of the Father is full of grace so that even when one sinner repents, there's a party in heaven. Isn't that an amazing thing? It scandalized the Pharisees. They just couldn't imagine 
that that truly reflected the heart of the Father. But oh, it did. And in the third parable of Luke chapter 15, Jesus included in the story of the prodigal son, the older brother who was that self-righteous gentleman who stayed and was faithful to the father. And when the prodigal son came home, instead of him rejoicing with the heart of the father that the lost son had been found, the self-righteous older brother was indignant about it. And it reflected the heart of the Pharisees toward the lost people coming back. But Jesus was the incarnation the explanation and the example and the fountainhood of grace to us. Now, the Bible speaks of the manifold grace of God. And as we center our hearts and our lives upon the person of Jesus, then we become these channels and vessels through which the grace of God pours. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it tells us, or it speaks rather, of the manifold grace of God. And the grace of God has numerous uses in our lives. And let me review those with you briefly this morning so you'll get a sense for what I'm saying. First of all, the Bible speaks of saving grace. In Titus chapter 2, I think it's uh, verse 14. Let me find it for you in case you're looking. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, not as a result of works, it is a gift of God. So to begin with, as evangelicals, we understand that grace is, that we are saved by grace. So through faith, we are introduced to the grace of God, and our relationship with the Lord begins on that footing. But the Bible takes us way beyond saving grace. It also introduces us to what's called sanctifying grace. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says, I commend you to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Grace not only saves us, but grace sanctifies us and makes us more like Jesus, who was the essence of grace and truth. And as we get into the word, and one of the things that I hear so, so many good things about in this church is how word-driven and how Bible-centered everything that goes on around here is. And in essence, when you get into the scripture as diligently as you people do, then it will build you up in the grace of God and it will make you more like Jesus, who was the essence of grace and truth. So the Bible speaks of saving grace. It also speaks of sanctifying grace. And it also speaks of strengthening grace. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Why is that so important and why is it so true? Because as you begin your journey from the city of destruction to celestial city, using Pilgrim's Progress terminology, as you go along that long and winding journey, you're going to hit several things along the way. Several challenges, temptations, and opportunities to lose that sense of closeness with God. And when grace strengthens the heart, it keeps you focused on the Lord as you're going through life's journey. And it keeps you moving forward in your faith. There are so many battlefield casualties today in the church, not to mention in the ministry, of people that have gone on well for a time spiritually and then lost their way. That's why the Bible says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Another reference to grace for the believer is found in Romans where it talks about serving grace. It says, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. 
All of us along the way are empowered by grace and endowed with certain gifts, and we need to use those gifts for the edification and the building up of the body. And the Bible says that due to the different gifts we're given, we're given different measures of grace. But as we embrace the favor of God and joyfully respond with gratitude to it, it builds within the heart of every believer the desire to serve and to use their spiritual gifts to build up the kingdom of God wherever they might. And to the degree that we use our gifts, we become channels that are more and more open to being used of God, which allows Him to pour into our lives more and more grace through which can channel through us and build up His kingdom. And so we have saving grace. We have sanctifying grace. We have strengthening grace. And we have serving grace. But brethren, most importantly and encouragingly, we have all sufficient grace. As a director of adult ministries at the Church of the Apostles in Atlanta, I interview all the new members. And in the last two years, I've probably interviewed 500 new members to this church, which means that I have heard in the last two years probably 500 testimonies. I usually spend between an hour and an hour and 15 minutes interviewing everybody that joins this church. So I've, been, I've had the opportunity of listening to a whole bunch, a truckload, if you will, of testimonies. And you know what's fascinating about all these testimonies I hear? Is that somewhere along the way, after people came to know the saving and were experiencing the strengthening grace of God, that they're going to go through some stretch in their journey in which they're going to get their blocks knocked off. Something's going to happen along the way in which a marriage is going to fall apart, you're going to lose a child, you're going to get lose two or three jobs in a row, something harsh and painful and difficult, and it's going to push you toward what's called the betrayal barrier in which you're going to wonder where God is because you're in so much pain. And what the Scripture tells us is that the grace that saves you and sanctifies you and strengthens you and empowers you to serve is going to be all-sufficient for you when you hit that wall. It's called the dark night of the soul. wonder how many of you this morning are perhaps at that place. That dark night when you feel like you're in a long tunnel and you're not sure you're going to get through. My wife and I went through this in my early 40s, about five or six years ago. We had seven conceptions and lost five of them. One was a full-term baby. We lost a full-term baby and had three miscarriages in a four-year period of time. My wife was in grief for almost four consecutive years, and while I was a senior pastor of a church, of a growing church in a big city in Tampa, Florida. And we were carrying this heavy load of grief, asking and hoping for the blessing of God for more children, and God allowed us to be frustrated time and time and time again. And you know, that was a period in my life in which for the first time I came fully in touch with my vulnerability as a person. And by getting down into that deep inner core of my vulnerability as a man, there the grace of God met me and sustained me and strengthened me and proved to be all sufficient for me. And that's why when we sing that hymn, Amazing Grace, it says, When grace was first awakened in my heart, as I moved on in my journey, I knew that that same grace would safely not only preserve me, but bring me home. And you know, the great preeminent model of grace in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. A man who was a violent aggressor, a blasphemer, and a persecutor of the church. And it says that the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, 
was drawn to the Lord through that Damascus Road experience. And we were told that the Apostle Paul's life served as a sounding board for the grace of God in so many different ways down through the years. No preacher ever had a testimony and the trumpet of a voice that the Apostle Paul had to champion the grace of God like the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting that all the New Testament epistles that Paul wrote begin with this phrase, grace to you. And they conclude with this phrase, grace to you. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of the entire Christian experience is this concept we call grace. Now, a few minutes ago, I said, you know, the thing that excites me about this church is that this is a church that's evangelical in conviction. You believe in the sufficiency of the scripture. You believe in the necessity of a born-again experience. And you believe in the urgency of reaching lost people. But you chose to put before the name evangelical the word grace. How did you get so right? You couldn't have put the combination any better. Because you see, as a church that, that's evangelical in conviction, flavored and textured by grace, do you understand that you are so much of what the world needs? There's an apology sound off line in Los Angeles, California. It's there for anybody to call 24 hours a day to call up and confess their sins. This apology sound off line gets 200 phone calls a day from people that have done all sorts of things that they're looking for forgiveness and relief from. If you listen to the recordings of this sound offline, you would hear stories like a, a, a lady who was driving a car and it was her fault she caused a car accident and five people were killed and she just wants those people to come back. And she can't get them back. So she calls the apology sound offline looking for some relief. One man calls up who's been alcoholic for 18 years and trashed and crashed and smashed his family through his alcoholism. And he calls up the apology sound offline and asked that somebody would forgive him. Well, brethren, the church is a place where people should go to get relief. This is where they come. This is where grace, if you will, should be on tap. When you come to churches where you should find Unconditional, non-judgmental acceptance. Years ago, there was an Italian revolutionary who got himself into trouble. So his co-laborers in the underworld of criminals took this man, and to hide him from the police, they put him in a village up in the foothills of the Alps. And they dressed him up as a priest. Now, picture this. This is a hardened criminal dressed up as a priest, and he ends up in this little village in the foothills of the Alps. And you know what happened when the villagers found out that a priest had come to town? They started lining up at this revolutionary dressed as a priest house asking for confession. They wanted to come to this priest to confess their sins, this so-called priest. And this revolutionary said, look, I'm sorry, I'm not the guy for this. You don't understand, and I can't tell you why, but I'm not the guy you wanted to be talking to. You know what those villagers did? They didn't listen. They didn't care. They wanted somebody to talk to about the pain and the brokenness of their lives. Do you see how through those examples, the world is looking for grace? And they'll take it just about anywhere that they can possibly get it. There once was a lady... Who made her living 
in the evening. Slept by day, made her living by night. This woman's lifestyle was pathetic. She had a two-year-old daughter and involved her two-year-old daughter in some of her ugly things and was so guilt-stricken that she went to the shelter for counseling. And she went to the shelter and she was relating her tale of woe to this counselor. And he's listening to this sordid, pathetic tale. And he looks at this lady and he said, Did you ever think about going to church? And this lady looked at him with a look of horror upon her face. And she said, Church? Why would I go there? I already feel bad enough about myself. Church would only make me feel worse. Now, brethren, you think about that. Because, you see, that type personality, a lady of the evening doing ugly, kinky things, those type people flocked to Jesus. So where's the disconnect today between the church and Jesus? I thought these two things were supposed to be together. Well, if I understand the Scripture... They are. Now, in conclusion this morning, brethren, I'm going to relate one thing about your church and then tell you a story and I'll be done. Do you know that there's not a man alive on this planet who does not understand this remarkable blend of grace and truth better than Jimmy Young, your pastor? The journey that God has taken that man down has wonderfully balanced this man who is a prophet who doesn't step on people's toes in church on Sunday morning. He amputates them. He is driven to speak the truth. It's the the spirit of a prophet. And yet Jimmy, through his experiences, has been brought to this beautiful blend and balance of grace and truth. Jimmy preaches the truth Flavored with grace. And you know this church. You have a pastor who understands this this magnificent, sublime, heavenly reality of grace and truth. And he shepherds and pastors this church whose name is grace. Not trinity, not faith, not hope, not covenant. But grace, evangelical church. Brethren, this church has got a very bright future. You have a man in the pulpit who can preach it and embody it better than anybody. And you've got a church that stands for the things that the world so desperately needs today. Grace, evangelical church. Brethren, live up to your namesake. Follow your leader. And the horizons that God is going to lead this church into defy imagination. Let me close with one story. I don't know if you ever saw the documentary called Amazing Grace that was done by a former reporter, a reporter, former preacher named Bill Moyers. And Bill Moyers, the end of the documentary was showing a lady named Jessie who was an opera singer. And she was, she was in Wembley Stadium where there where was this day-long concert in which they've had they had rock bands and all these different 
uh, folks that come in and entertain people all day long in the, in the crowd by late at night were, were high on drugs and drunk and, and they had heard Guns N' Roses type bands all day long. And, and back in the dressing room is this opera singer. And for some reason they scheduled this opera singer to be the concluding act in the, at the end of this rock concert in Wembley Stadium in London. And so Bill Moyers is interviewing her, and, he's, and she's talking about the song she's going to sing. And the song that this lady's going to sing is entitled Amazing Grace. Now, what, what in, how, who staged this? That this? At the end of this big Ron Kurt concert, we got a, an opera singer going to come out and sing a cappella, the song Amazing Grace. So she's inside talking to Bill Moyers and, and tells the story of this hymn Amazing Grace. And she says, do you know that John Newton, the guy that wrote this hymn, he was a slave trader. And, and he regularly abused the slaves in so many different ways. And then he met the grace of God and it transformed his life. And do you know the ironic thing about the song Amazing Grace is that he probably wrote the song and then set it to the tune of one of those slave songs that they were singing down in the hall of the ship when he was transporting them Africa from Africa back to England. And he was, she was telling Bill Murray's story. So the, the, the video ends with this lady concluding her conversation with memoirs, and she walks out on the stage of this great concert. One single light flashing on this opera singer. And it's late at night, and the crowd is unruly and rowdy, and they're expecting more guns and roses, and this lady walks out with a single spotlight upon her. Acapello, no bands, no banks of speakers to back her up. She just starts singing in this beautiful operatic voice the song, Amazing Grace. She gets through the first verse and there's hoots and hollers and boos and hisses coming from the crowd. And one guy hollers out, we want guns and roses. And she continues. By the time she gets to the second stanza, the place is quiet. By the time she gets to the third stanza of Amazing Grace, there's some folks starting to sing along with her. And by the time she gets to the fourth stanza of this song, Amazing Grace, the whole stadium has just been turned from a rock concert into a worship service. Now tell me, brethren, what power just fell on that stadium? It was the power of Amazing Grace. Brethren, your name is Grace Evangelical Church. Truth cleanses the mind, but grace heals the heart. And when those two things come together, as they did in the person of Jesus, the power of that influence is irresistible. And when grace walks into a room, our grace-starved world falls at its feet. Now, brethren, I sense in my spirit that God has called the man who fills this pulpit and this congregation to bear witness to the grace of God in this community like no other flock. And because of your commitment to truth, you're evangelical, and because of the need to balance that truth with grace, brethren, you have got what the world is desperately searching for. Please follow your leader who's so great at this. And live up to your namesake and fulfill your calling as Grace Evangelical Church here in Memphis. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we present ourselves before you this morning as beneficiaries and recipients of the gospel 
of grace. Through whom we've met and been introduced to Jesus, who was truth. And what we found in the person of Jesus is this marvelous tapestry woven seamlessly together, these two realities, grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and he was full of truth. He was just as full of truth as he was of grace and just as full of grace as he was of truth. And of his fullness we've all received. And he's come and exegeted for us from the heart of the Father. The reality that when one sinner repents, there's joy in heaven. And that as we as a church grow to be like Jesus and strive for this marvelous balance of grace and truth, then there will be those coming from the star-filled world looking for grace. And they'll find grace in the right place. Anoint this pastor as he returns in a couple of weeks. Lord, may the relief that you've given him while he's been away for a few Sundays empower this remarkably gifted man of God all the more And through the things you've taught him about grace and truth, Lord, let this pulpit be as living water Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And, Lord, I pray for this congregation that they would absorb, that they would come and dip their buckets from this well of living water and then take it to a lost and dying world, remaining faithful to their namesake, honoring to their Savior, and so relevant to a needy world. Grant it, O Lord. For your name's sake.